I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Two producers this week, Patrick Antonetti, of course, you know that name, and Bob Tabador. Appreciate the, those guys helping me out. We have a great podcast this week, that, that being objective. It was just so much fun. Mike Breen and Ian Eagle start this podcast together. They are longtime friends. They don't really need an introduction, I don't think, if you're a sports media fan. But Mike Breen is the voice in the NBA Finals and has been now for uh, nearly two decades, uh, ESPN NBA announcer, and also calls the Knicks on the MSG networks. Ian Eagle is uh, one of the voices for Turner Sports' national NBA coverage, also calls the Nets on the Yes Network. You also know him, obviously, for his his excellence in calling the NFL on CBS. And uh, I've been working on getting them together. We finally found a date, and they were terrific. They discussed how they first met and their friendship, how they would describe each other's broadcast style, why they don't consider themselves competitors. We got into why they still love calling the Knicks and Nets respectfully, uh, how they view production meetings, what their thought is about the potential of incorporating gambling content into their broadcast, the NBA calls that they're most proud of, and then uh, a couple of great anecdotes about players uh, coming up to them over the years and talking about their broadcast, including Kevin Garnett calling Ian Eagle affectionately a motherfucker. So that was great. And then they are followed by Dana O'Neill, my colleague at The Athletic, one of the foremost college basketball writers in the country. She has a new book, The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. She, um, she explored the Big East in full. Uh, in basketball, I should be specific there, and just their incredible history, you know, from John Thompson to Jim Calhoun, Lou Carnesecca, Jim Beheim, you know, Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's one of the most uh, interesting conferences uh, in college basketball history. And Dana talks about just how she approached the reporting and writing, getting some of the more famous people. She got actually an interview with John Thompson before he passed, which is really important for the book and just what the Big East is now and and where it sits in the pecking order of college basketball. And we also talk a little bit about covering college basketball today in 2021. So Mike Breen, Ian Eagle to start, followed by Dana O'Neill coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, I'm joined by uh, two. If you're a basketball fan, you know both of these gentlemen. Uh, they have long resumes. Quite frankly, I'm exhausted. So I'm not going to give the entire resume, but I will give some. Mike Breen is the lead voice for the NBA and ESPN and ABC, including the NBA Finals, of course, does NBA Saturday primetime on ABC. Mike can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe he's called the NBA Finals 15 times, which is just sort of crazy in itself. Um, you also probably know him as the TV voice of the Knicks. Interestingly enough, Mike has actually called the NFL on NBC, as well as uh, for Fox, which maybe I will ask him about this because I don't think many people know that. Ian Eagle has been, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, this is going to take a while. Ian Eagle is one of the play-by-play voices for the NFL on CBS. He's done that since 1998. In addition to football, 
Ian's called the NCAA tournament for CBS for a decade plus. He's one of the leads voices for Turner's NBA coverage. I think he's now in his 12th or 13th year as a TV play-by-play announcer for the Nets. Uh, something you might not know, Ian once called the uh, NCAA track and field championships. Ian, I know my career highlight. So I got two of the most prominent NBA broadcasters, two of the best play-by-play broadcasters, in my opinion, in the sport, in the history of the sport. I believe they are friends, as they, as the kids would say offline. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Mike Breen and Ian Eagle. Mike, Ian, how are you? We're good. This is not going to be strictly 30 minutes of Raptors questions. <laughs> it's only going to be 30 minutes of Ken Birch questions, Mike. It's really <laughs> going to be literally granular that deep. Richard, I, I, Richard, I was I was told this was the Manning cast. Am I in the wrong place? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. on me. Manning. I hit the wrong link. I was told I told Noah Eagle was going to be. Uh, <laughs> Bring him in. <laughs> well, this I think this is the one podcast Noah is not the one job Noah does not have at the moment. I will say, and I want to start with this. I don't know if you know this, but I I believe I um, Mike is not going to have a problem with me sharing this. You know, I wanted to get both of you together. And is this, I think I texted Mike, and I'm like, Mike, would you be cool going on a uh, podcast with Ian Eagle? And he said, No, I would not. I, we, we got into a fight, and I, I'm, I'm not talking to him anymore. Where the relationship is over, and literally, I sort of believed it. I think for like a couple seconds, and then I realized, Wait a minute, I'm getting my leg pulled here. But that was pretty. I thought. I thought. I thought that was, you know, Mike Breen has a very sneaky sense of humor. Those of us who grew up in New York know about this from, you know, his 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 old uh, fan days. But I like that. I thought he basically, for at least for a split second, had me convinced you guys were uh, beefing. Yeah, I think something that goes wildly underreported in our business are the huge sports media feuds from broadcast <laughs> to the broadcaster. I stabbed Kevin Burkhardt in the thigh three years ago. Never got out. Never went public. Good so, are. Yeah. yeah, Mike. Mike plays the game. Like, yeah, we're friends. I've never met Mike in person. You can't even get close to Mike. Security just crushes you if you try to say hello. We, we've had stretches where we weren't speaking. Uh, there's been a couple. <laughs> uh, we've patched it up recently, more so for the kids' sake. We want to make sure we have <laughs> Nice. That's that's big. All right, Ian, let me start here. In all seriousness, how long have you and Mike known each other? Like when did and do you remember the first time you met? Mike, when did you start at FAN? When was the transition for Imus to FAN? Uh 89. So then I met you in 1989. Because I was an intern in 89. Right. And then I started at FAN in 1990. And Mike was there in the mornings. My shift was at night. So we were not crossing paths. By 91, I started doing some different day parts. And then by 92, I started working with Mike. More often, Mike had started doing some Nick stuff. And I would be back at the studio sometimes having to deal with some of the production elements. And as Mike moved up the ladder, uh, I was blown away by his abilities, but really more how great a guy he was. And that someone that was normal and someone that was a product of the whole FAN culture was moving up the ladder at the rate that he was, gave me a lot of hope that this could be done. So 
Mike's whole path and ascension truly was inspiration for me that that this was very possible. Mike, you know, uh, go ahead. Yeah, because Ian would have been younger than you, obviously. Yeah, I have to interrupt. It. First off, if you can, you probably can't tell. He's reading this. This is not <laughs> that's number one. And number one, too, he, he's lying. I don't really remember him or his name till about 2015 was the first time I was. <laughs> um, no, no, he, he was he was an Indian man, and FAN was kind of a it was a cool place um, back then. I, you know, I haven't worked there in many many years. Obviously, it's changed. But it was such a cool place because you felt you were part of something special. So you kind of knew everybody. And even if you didn't know them well, you were aware that they were around. Um, and like everybody, when Ian first started and you saw the name, everybody thought it was Ian Eagle. And then when you realized when he started doing on-air work, um, and again, not just throwing it back at him, but like right off, right off the off the bat, it just the talent just came flying at you that you knew that that he was going to be something special. But it was back in those early days when we first met. But early on, we didn't know each other that well because, as Ian said, we were on completely different ships. Mike, um, I'm going to ask this of Ian too, but I think it's it's always interesting to me when I interview broadcasters when they talk about um, other people's style, just to even hear how they answer the question. How would you describe Ian as a basketball broadcaster? Um, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit here, uh, um, but I think it's perfection. He brings everything. Uh, number one, he brings um, the work ethic. You can tell, and a play-by-play -play guy will be able to tell when he's watching any event, no matter what sport it is, if the play-by-play -play guy that's doing the game that you're watching is prepared. You can tell in the opening minutes, and there's nobody more prepared than he is. So that's number one. Number two, he sounds like he's – there's no other place in the world he'd rather be than that seat he's sitting in calling that game. And number three – he sounds like the person's next to him, uh, whoever the analyst is, there's no person he'd rather be sitting next to at that particular time in his life than that person. And those three things jump out to jump out at you every single time he's on the air. Um, then you can get into, you know, the, the skill of his play by play calling, the big moments, how he just seizes the big moments, uh, the sense of humor. Um, it's all there. It's uh, it's in my opinion, it's perfection. He's as good as anybody who's ever done. Uh, I, and I want to ask you the same thing, although, uh, you know, that 2016-17 Nets team that won 2021 games, I mean, <laughs> where, where else would you rather be than, than there in, in April? So I have the same question for Mike. How would you describe Mike Breen as a play-by-play -play broadcaster? Richard, I'd, I'd love to deal with this question. I've never actually heard Mike's work, <laughs> so this is a little uncomfortable. Uh, Mike, Mike is the best person doing this the best and the amazing part to me with mike the passion comes through the same way that it did literally 30 years ago if you want to go back go on the internet and look up calls from 20 years ago 25 years ago the same essence of who mike is was there then and now it's just embedded in your brain. He is the soundtrack for a generation of basketball, a generation. He will set every single record that will never be touched because of how he approaches the game, the preparation, it's always there. He and I share the same methodology of doing things by hand and attempting 
to squeeze it into your brain, trying to do things ahead of time and plan so that you're prepared when the assignment comes your way. But Mike f- makes it feel seamless, like it's right there at, at his fingertips at all times. And then there's something that you can't teach. It's just in him. It's who he is. His ability to find the perfect thing to say in the perfect moment every single time. The consistency is unmatched. And what he feels about the sport, you know it from the second you turn the game on. Uh, it, it courses through his veins and you feel it. He articulates it. Uh, there's a reason why he's been doing this as long as he has. And there's a reason why he's been at the top of the mountain for as long as he has, because he is the best doing this. I appreciate both your answers. I know, Ian, that's hard for you to be serious, so I, I do appreciate you. <laughs> it is. It is difficult, too. Great point. I'm kissing each other's ass now. And, and- <laughs> exactly. feel dirty. I know. <laughs> Boy, Mike might get in trouble for that curse there, that Disney employee there, Ian. We might have to edit that out. So, Ian, I want to stick with you, and then obviously I'll go back to Mike. But the reason I'm sticking with you is because it, it, the question relates to Mike. You know, you both have been in the business long enough to know that there's certainly uh, competition exists both within a certain company between talent sometimes and and certainly a lot of times between competitors, you know, ESPN and Fox, et cetera, et cetera. What I've noticed in when it comes to the NBA is, and maybe I'm to blame because I'm sort of part of the group writing this. There's always been a lot of a lot of things written about the studio shows and sort of quote unquote competing against each other, particularly inside the NBA and Countdown. What I've almost never heard, uh, and this is why I want to ask you this, I've almost never heard people at the highest levels of NBA broadcasting, people such as yourself or Kevin Harlan or Brian Anderson, et cetera, no one ever seems to be jealous of Mike's success. You never hear even anything sort of back channeling like, um, hey, I should be the caller of the NBA finals. And not this guy. That's just very interesting to me because that is not the same when it comes to the studio part of the business. And I wonder from you, a guy who obviously calls the highest of highest games with the exception of the NBA Finals, why do you think that is? You know, I think this generation of broadcasters, for whatever reason, friendships have been the main thrust of the relationship. And... I've been doing it 28 years. I started with the Nets in 1994. Mike started with the Knicks a couple of years before me. So we've been in the same market forever doing these games. It's never, ever struck me or dawned on me to feel any form of jealousy. All I've ever felt for Mike was good feelings and pride and happiness for him that his career was doing well. I don't know. I don't want to speak of past generations or how territorial it might have been. I just know with Kevin Harlan, with Brian Anderson, with Dave Pash, with Mark Jones, with Ryan Rucco, with Spiro Didas, uh, with whoever is doing this at the national level, I root for all of them. I want them all to do well. There's enough to go around in this business and to, to harbor any feelings of negativity or ill will that serves no purpose whatsoever. So I don't want to speak for Mike and I don't want to speak for all the other individuals that I just mentioned working the NBA, but I just know on a personal level, I've never felt that way. I've never felt any derision 
towards anybody else's success in in this arena. Mike, I wonder how you view this, obviously, because you are you happen to be the person who's calling the NBA Finals, the, the highest level one can call in your profession. Oh, Ian and I have actually talked about this quite a bit, and it's a great question. I don't know the answer to it, but for some reason, our generation have become this close-knit bunch where we're always texting each other, we're trying to arrange dinners together, um, a guy calls a game, you're sitting at home watching to him. I ain't close the game. I'm texting him, telling him, oh, that was a fantastic call, or he finished up the game. May you nailed it tonight, stuff like that. We we go back and forth with everybody. Now, Ian's a little different um, because we've known each other and we're in the same city. I mean, I love him like a brother. So it's it's all support and encouragement. And, you know, it's I, I don't know if I agree with Ian. I don't know if the, the previous generation felt the same way, but there's enough great jobs to go around that we're all living a dream. And we all realize how blessed we are to be doing what we're doing. There's are days I walk into Madison Square Garden. I still can't believe that, that I get to call games there. And I know Ian feels the same way every time he calls an event, especially any big event. So um, I, I think we're grateful for what we have and know that, you know, the job is challenging. And we kind of confide in each other and talk about the, the, the difficulties of the job, the fun of the job, uh, all those different things that it's, it's like this amazing brotherhood. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite things about the business is, is how we're all kind of together uh, joining this bond of, of being play-by-play guys who, who really root for each other. Mike, I want to stick with you. Um, something that's um, you know something that's unique to the NFL is the 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 broadcasters who call those games and and obviously the postseason games as well are not calling local teams. You know they are truly national broadcasters. In some other sports, including basketball, that's not the case. You and I still call local teams in addition to doing national games. That's always been interesting to me. Uh, You know, Joe Buck did that for a while with the Cardinals and then uh, focused nationally. You guys have continued this, uh, these ties, particularly to, to the New York based teams, which I find really interesting. And I wonder, Mike, from your perspective, because you certainly don't have to do this anymore if you wanted to just be an ESPN broadcaster. Obviously, you could do that very easily. But you've opted not to. And I I wonder why that is. Well, the Knicks were the team I grew up uh, rooting for. It's the team that helped me grow this love of basketball. Uh, The Garden is just, it's one of the special places in all of sports. And I've always just loved being there calling the games. And, and the people I work with are amazing. Um, work with the same producer and director, uh, Howie Singer and Spencer Julian for years. I mean, they're like members of my family. Um, and it's still, you know, for, for me, the way I grew up to be sitting center court at Madison Square Garden calling Nick games um, is still to this day. It's sometimes it's like you scratch your head and like, really, they're letting me do this all these years. So it's, it's too much fun not to do. Uh, and, um, you know, doing the, the local telecasts, we in many ways approach it the same as national. Obviously, you're, you're appealing to a different audience. You're appealing to Nick fans, so you do have to change it. Um, but it's still NBA basketball, and it's still so much fun. And quite frankly, it really helps me in my national telecasts because I, uh, I see a lot of the teams and talk to a lot of the people um, throughout the course of the season, not just when I do national games. Uh, and I want to ask you the same question, but I do want to let my audience know the caveat that those of us who watch net games know Sarah Kustak is carrying the entire broadcast. <laughs> so it's a different it's a different situation than Mike. But I but it's it, for you the same question. Like you you know you clearly love doing the Nets. 
they're obviously a, a terrific and interesting team, so that that is helpful. But I, I would I am curious for the same reason for you because you were once again are at a place in your career that if you did not want to do the Nets, you would be a national broadcaster with all your assignments. Yeah, I feel a kinship with the organization, certainly with the production team. Frank DeGrace has been my producer for 25 years. This is a deep friendship, one of my best friends in the world based on us working together and probably can complete each other's sentences based on knowing what he's thinking. He knows what I'm thinking in the middle of the game. Very similar uh, with Mike and Spencer and Howie, who are both just terrific and brilliant at their jobs. And that's what keeps you going. In addition, uh, I, I'd love to see the Nets go out and win a championship and, and feel like you're part of that in some way. Uh, Mike has been very close on a couple of occasions with the Knicks and they came up just short. There is this sense of commonality and there's this sense of teamwork and and feeling good for people that you've gotten to know and develop relationships with to see them rise up in that way. So uh, for me, uh, I still really enjoy the local broadcast because uh, there is a feeling of of family. And, you know, let's face it, I'm a glommer. I'm glomming a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I really I do enjoy it. I'm I'm bullshitting on the glomming stuff. <laughs> Word glomer on the air. <laughs> it's not even a word. I don't think. Sound. I like it though. It's, it's it sounds good. All right. I want to move to um, a, a topic that I'm just always fascinated by as someone who's interested in this, and that's production meetings, because. Having talked to broadcasters both at the national level and the local level, it's just it's very interesting just how coaches and players interact, the kind of access people at your level get, how often you feel like are coaches and players being honest with you or are they bullshitting you? And so, Mike, I want to start with you because, again, like for let's just take even the NBA finals, for example, ESPN is the rights holder. Like in theory, you're going to get access to coaches and, and players. How have you found those production meetings and when coaches and players are talking to you and you really can only make this judgment sort of after the fact, do you find that they're honest or are they semi-honest or, and you have to sort of navigate what's true and not true? How, how have you sort of processed those kind of meetings when you meet with the coaches and players privately? Well, there are a lot of variables. Uh, a lot depends on where you are in your career. When I first started, you know, they were very guarded. They didn't know me. And, and obviously, I, I would not have trusted me either to, you know, to share the secrets. But as you get older, older and you work with them and they see you and they listen to you and they, they get to get a feel for your work, and then they're much more open. Most of them are really good. And some of them don't even have to say, hey, listen, this is not for air. Um mm -hmm. But some of them will still say that, and, and understandably so, just to give you a feel of what's going on. Some will always be guarded and never change. And then there are some that just, they just empty the whole the tank and they <laughs> everything what they feel. And they do care how you phrase it on the air, but they're just really open because they trust you. And a lot too depends, Richard, on who you're working with as well. Um, you go into a production meeting with UB Brown, it's, it's unbelievable the respect that they have uh, for that man. And now with Mark and Jeff, both players and coaches, um, 
the respect they have for them and the amount of information they give them and the back and forth. And when they start asking, whether it's Mark or, or Jeff, or start asking UB questions about how to deal with this zone, how to deal with that player, then you know you're in a great spot. And, you know, more often than not, you sit there and just listen and learn and learn and learn. Interesting. Right, and same thing. I mean, you've obviously worked with a lot of great analysts, former players or former coaches. Do you agree with Mike that maybe the whatever the respect quotient is with the analyst maybe can determine how much uh, openness exists in those meetings? Yeah, it, it definitely plays a role. I think also how you frame things over the years, coaches realize that you're not going to burn them. And if things are presented in the manner in which they were articulated in the meeting, then you build up a little credibility as the years go on. Just like Mike, uh, when I started, you tried to be more of a fly on the wall and take it all in and process it and then pick and choose what could be used. And there are times where something is said and you've got to make a determination of how you're going to handle it on the air to best get the point out, but also maintain the relationship. It's a very fine line in doing this job because you might get that point out on the air that day and you may never get the kind of access that you're looking for again, but you also have to be true to yourself and you've got to be comfortable. This is something that I realized pretty early in my career. Whatever you say on the air, you better be comfortable if that person comes to you and asks why you said it. You better have a reason behind what you said. And if it's as simple as, ah, oh, you know, I, I was just uh, talking off the cuff, that's not going to cut it. When players' careers are on the line, coaches' careers, GMs, owners, I never want to be put in a situation where I can't explain what I said. And I've only had a few moments that I can think of, both NFL and NBA, where I've had to actually defend something. Only a few. Maybe I can count it on one hand. And every time I felt very comfortable in explaining what my perspective was. I wasn't taking a pot shot. I wasn't making it personal. But that requires a lot of uh, understanding of how this dynamic works and a lot of experience on walking that line and, and making sure that you're true to who you are and you're comfortable with what you said. Mike, um, this is something I've written, so I'm not just saying this because you are on this podcast. I, I mean, it, I believe it. I've written it. It sort of exists. Um, like you, the last couple of years, like to me, y y you've been as uh, as good as as we have heard anyone call in the NBA finals. D like again, having as someone who's listened to you, even going back to my days of living in New York, like th there really there's no drop off in performance. So to me, you could really do this job. I would say for as long as you want. Realistically, how do you approach just calling, working for ESPN, calling the NBA Finals? Um, you know, what we have at least seen in broadcasting, Mike, like there's an 88-year-old, 89-year-old guy on the air right now who's still excellent. <laughs> so like the fact is like, I'm not sure we should put any limits anymore. You know what I'm saying on, on broadcasters and age? Because like QB Brown is somebody who has defied whatever you previously thought convention was guys like Vital and you know there's Al Michaels there's all sorts of them so I wonder philosophically if you can answer the question how are you looking at your career sort of as you head forward you know Ryan and I have talked about this a lot um, and it's silly to, to put any kind of all right I want to work 
five more years. I want to work 10 more years. I want to work till I'm 75. It's to make plans like that, I think is it's crazy. But we both have talked about this and how as long as we still not only love calling the games, but as long as we love the preparation, because that is such an integral part of, of why we feel comfortable on the air. If you if you're completely prepared, you take to the air, you just feel comfortable and you feel, all right, whatever happens, you're going to be able to navigate. And we both have talked about how as long as that preparation is still fun, like you're sitting down, you're doing work and you find a couple of things. Wow, I'm, I can use that. And you get excited about it because, you know, you're going to be able to use that tonight on the telecast. So as long as that goes, um, um, you know, I, I'll go as long as that happens. And, and I think and I'm not just saying this. But, you know, I fell in love with basketball because it's a team sport. I just love the team aspect of it and how five players working together can overcome another team that has individual talent that far exceeds them, but because they work so well together. Broadcasting basketball is the same way. And when you have analysts, and in my case, whether it's one with Walt Frazier or whether it's Mark and Jeff together, when you have people sitting next to you like that, your job is just so much easier and so much more fun when you have people in the production truck, the producers, directors, the cameramen who are the unsung heroes of our business, and it all comes together. There's no better feeling that your team just finished off a great telecast. And that's, to me, the joy of it. And as you get older, to me, the relationships are more important than the big moments on the air because the relationships are part of making those big moments special. And, and that's as long as that keeps happening. Uh, I'll go for as long as they'll have me. I and um, I want to switch the subject, and I want Mike to answer this after you. But you, you'll you'll get the challenging question first. You you both have seen, or you're certainly both aware, that sports gambling has really become far more prominent in the U.S. with the legalization of it. In I, I'm not sure the exact number of states at the moment, but you guys sort of know what I'm saying. We haven't necessarily seen yet in the kind of national sports that you guys call announcers like talking about, let's say, a point spread or betting lines or over-unders or, or you know, a prop bet. Kevin Durant is, you know, the, uh, the over-under on Kevin Durant's points are 25. Uh, but that could be coming down the road. You know, we, none, of, none of us know. So, Ian, how would you feel if your bosses, whether it was at the Yes Network or at Turner, sort of started to say to you, we would like you to sort of in a – um, in the most seamless way possible, start incorporating some of this information into your play-by-play broadcast? Well, first of all, we, we'll know it's over for Mike when he says, bang, I've lost my dentures. Like that, that'll be the end of it. Wow. You know, be, when, uh, when you get that combination, it's over. Right, but that goes viral though. So maybe <laughs> That goes viral because the right. teeth pop out. <laughs> right. <laughs> as, far as, <laughs> as far as the gambling... I'm aware. I'm not a, a gambler personally. The last bet I made was on Monday Night Football, 1987, the Chargers and the Raiders. Ironically, Dan Fouts, who I was partnered with for CBS and one of my truly closest friends in the world for 10 years, we worked together at CBS. Dan Fouts, I bet on the Chargers. They took an early lead on the Raiders. It looked like I was going to win 250 bucks, which would have been, oh, 1987, forget it. I would have lived like a king for the entire semester. And the Raiders came back, won the game. Chargers didn't cover. Years later, when I'm working with Dan, I said, you know, I bet on you in 1987 to win that Monday night football game. He goes, 
what are you an idiot like why would you do that who told who told you to do that that's your fault schmuck so he crushed me and I'm not a gambler I just I've never had that interest level in it I understand it's part of what we're doing I understand it very well could seep into our coverage I'm open to covering it in a way that doesn't distract from the game but I'm never going to be an expert and I'm certainly not going to pass myself off as an expert. I don't know what the line is on the games that I'm calling. I have no idea what the over under is. I'm worried enough about the biographical information, the statistics, the storylines that it doesn't even enter my train of thought. If that's a variable and I'm told that that's important to the network and uh, we need to incorporate it, I'll be open to it. I'll be a professional. I'll figure out a way to do it. But Richard, to be perfectly frank, it's it's not something that's really on my radar, game in and game out. Mike, I want to ask you the same question. And the reality for you will be that I think once you're, you know, presuming you're obviously still working at ESPN, like once sort of Disney makes a decision corporately that they're going to sort of go much more in on this, it'll probably be something all the broadcasters would, in theory, be doing across the board, not just NBA. So, from your perspective, how would you, what would your comfort level be if that becomes part of like the call? See, I, I, I disagree with you, Richard. I, I don't think it'll ever be part of the actual game calling announcer's job. Uh, you know, we'll read sponsorships. You know, this, this spot is sponsored by DraftKings, whatever it is. Uh, but I don't think they'll ever have where the actual play-by-play and analyst announcers are getting involved in point spreads, why a team is favored in terms of that point spread. I, I, at least I hope. I don't Because I don't think it belongs um, again, for people that want to do it, more power to them. I'm like, I, and I'm not a gambler. Uh, but I don't think it'll ever be part of, of what we do during the course of the game. That's interesting, Mike. I don't know if I agree with you, but, uh, but I, but I think that's an interesting perspective. And I guess we'll, uh, we'll all find out in the next couple of years. All right. I have, uh, uh, two more for you. I, and I want to start with you. Do you have a singular call, a singular NBA call that you're most proud of? Singular moment. Yeah, you could take it either way, like a singular moment or or maybe even just a moment in a game that like, you know, you were really like, you know, if I if someone had to sort of give the eye and eagle, you know, real at the at the end of this <laughs> yeah. for basketball, what would it what would what would that what would you want that to be? Uh, there were so many in regards to Jason Kidd and Vince Carter during those net years where they were creating highlight after highlight and you had to be on your toes and you had to be ready as a play by play announcer. And as Mike will tell you, you can't script this stuff, whatever pops into your head in the moment, you go with it and you embrace it and you commit to it. You know, I've had different calls that I've worked in. Some people are always curious, where do they come from? I know Mike gets it all the time with Bang, and it's something that he would say at Fordham, at college games in a big basket and it wasn't something that he would use early in his career he he slowly worked up to it where it became a a signature call for him for me things that developed very organically and then others you know i i got a little bit of something from someone or some wordplay that made sense you know when my kids were in middle school and someone would come up to them or junior high school, whatever it might be. And they say, uh, Hey, Noah, is your dad the man's jam guy? Like that's a little embarrassing as a dad, 
like I don't want to be known as the man's jam guy. I'm sure Mike got it too, where his kid's like, hey, your dad says bang. Like, yeah, yeah, he does. He says bang. It it works for him. It 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 helped pay for for the house. So rack attack was something that Lawrence Frank said in a production meeting. Nice. We we were we were talking before a production meeting. I think they were playing Miami. And me and Frank DeGrace, the, the producer I mentioned earlier, were in there. And Lawrence just kept saying, well, we got to get rack attacks. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? Rack attack. And then later that night, Aaron Williams had a big dunk late. So I just said it on the air to make Frank DeGrace laugh. And that was it. I, then I kept going with it because Frank laughed and it had a little wordplay to it. I don't, to this day, I'm not sure Lawrence even knows that I got it from him. And I don't even know if it's a term that he ever used. He was just using it that day. So you just never know where where things pop up and and how you utilize them and when you use them. That's the other part about doing local games where you're doing Mike at his height was doing 75, 80 Nick games a year. I was doing 75, 80 net games a year. And you get to workshop some things, things that work, things that don't, things you get rid of, things that you go back to in the moment. And it becomes a little bit of muscle memory over the years of doing this. Mike, um, you know, in terms of like sort of a signature call or moment, not necessarily your bank thing, but like, you know, you've had so many, you've, because the NBA finals sort of are so dramatic in themselves, you really have had so many, you've called so many, so much of the most famous plays in the last 20 years. So, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, LeBron's block or like, I, I'm not even, I mean, I'll ask you this question, but I almost feel like it's unfair to ask you this question because you have called so many iconic moments given what the finals represent. It's, um, it's really impossible to pick one. I'm going to sound hokey here, but I just, I feel so privileged to be able to call so many games over the years and, and finals games. And you just, you just want to do it right. You just want to, uh, do justice to the moment because these players and these coaches, they work so hard, they work their whole lives to get to this moment. And you want to be able to, to give it the proper call that it'll be remembered as a, as a, as a great moment, not necessarily for the call, but just for the moment of what was accomplished on the court. So um, that's all. You, and again, um, you want to be able to do it the right way when it's, when it's a critical moment. And if you have, for example, Mark and Jeff, they have this unbelievable, uncanny ability in a big moment, knowing when to lay out and let me do my thing. And that's not easy because they're basketball fans too. In big moments, they get excited. Yet uh, they just have this, this, this unbelievable feel of knowing when to lay out. So it's part of a team thing as well. Um, but it goes back, Richard, to, to again, the preparation. If, 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 you've, if you've worked hard, if you're all ready and you, and you know everything that's going on, um, when the moment comes, at least you have the, the, the foundation to make the right call uh, and you hope it comes out the right way. Um, so th that's kind of a, a crappy answer to your question, but that's all I got. No, I appreciate it. it, it to ask you that is almost impossible, just given the, the number of NBA finals you've called. All right, so this is the last one. I'll start with you, Mike, and then we'll finish with Ian. I, I realize that you're not, you're not doing what you're doing to get feedback or praise from people. But I would imagine if I were in your position and if there were a player, a particular player of significance who came up to me and said, hey, like I happen to hear this call that you made of me 
And I, I just want to thank you. Like, that was really cool. That's something like I'm going to remember when I get older. Or that's something like my mom or dad really appreciated. Mike, is there anything that sort of stands out for you where a player, a player that you called came to you at a later date and said, hey, I happen to watch this. And I really appreciate it. That was a great call. Um, yeah, it, it's happened a few times. Uh, Chris Paul uh, has come up to me a number of times to tell me how when it's well, it's not for him, but when his kid's practicing in the driveway and he and he hits a shot, his his kid is screaming out, "Bang!" <laughs> um, he, uh, I think that the compliment, or one of the compliments that that really meant a lot to me, Magic Johnson once said to me, "He goes, I love your enthusiasm when you're on the air." And he goes, "It shows how much you love basketball." And if there was any player who's ever shown how much he loves basketball uh, with just pure joy is Magic Johnson. So for him to say that to me, that that meant a, a great deal to me. Yeah, that's a great compliment. What about you, Ian? Same question. Yeah, with, with the Nets, no doubt, Jason Kidd, Vince Carter, those two have said to me individually, even years later, uh, just looking back at the highlights and enjoying those calls. And that meant a lot because – they really helped put the Nets on the map. The Nets were NBA Siberia, and all of a sudden they were relevant, and Jason Kidd was was the main reason why. And then ultimately when Carter came in and, and he produced so many highlights, and every now and again I'll, I'll get a look from uh, certain guys when I pass them in the hallway at the arena, and uh, they know that that I may have had a, a really good call on on one of their plays previously, and I'll get a wink. There was one story in particular that that still resonates with me. It was NBA playoffs. The Nets stole the game in Toronto, game one. And the way the series was set up, there was time in between game one and game two. And PJ Carlissimo was coaching the team and decided, hey, we're going to get out of Toronto after the game, go back to the New York area and then go back for game two, but practice back at home. So we're online. And as Mike will tell you, when you play in Toronto, if you're with the team, you still have to go through the airport. There's no bus to the airplane. You have to go through customs. You have to go through security. So there we are in the middle of the day going through security at the airport, and I end up behind Kevin Garnett online. They just pulled out a thrilling game one victory, and KG was talking the entire time, saying things that I can't even repeat <laughs> on the bus from Air Canada Center at the time to the airport. And we pull up to the airport, we now scurry to get online, and I just end up behind Kevin, and he is in a different dimension at that point. And he just turns to me as we're taking the stuff out of our pockets and putting it on the belt. And he just turns to me and he looks at me and goes, man, you're the motherfucking voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, fortunately, there was someone there to witness it. Ian Riley, who was our graphics coordinator, was right behind me and he saw the whole thing. And then he repeated it three times as he went through the screening. And it it may have been the height of my career. I don't know if I'll ever match that moment. <laughs> wow. That, uh, that is a motherfucking great way to end the uh, podcast, Dine. Yeah. Nice. All right, listen, these guys, again, I, I, I don't really need to uh, give their resumes. They're two of the best 
broadcasters of their generation. But the reality is they're two of the best NBA broadcasters of any generation. And it's really as a um, – forget about my job. Just as an NBA fan and NBA viewer, I really, really appreciate the work and preparation and passion and care that Mike Breen and Ian Eagle put into their broadcast. Mike Breen, of course, is the voice of the NBA Finals for ESPN. Ian Eagle is um, one of the uh, leading – voices for Turner's uh, NBA coverage. Obviously, you also know I from his work uh, for the NFL on CBS and calls the NCAA tournament as well. Listen, Mike and I, and you didn't have to do this, but I know you guys are tight, so I appreciate uh, trying to do a little something different on this podcast, give you guys a chance to go back and forth. I really, really appreciate it. I wish you nothing but the best of success, and thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Appreciate the kind words, Richard. Richard, thank you. We put our differences aside just for this. (laughs) It's like it's like Camp David. I, I don't know how you pulled this off. I uh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully my future, my my post presidency future is like Carter. Yeah, perhaps not the election. Uh, yeah, no this this was like Sadat <laughs> Begin. Incredible. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> All right, as I said at the top, uh, Dana O'Neill is a senior writer for The Athletic, um, my colleague there, and you know one of the really uh, amazing people who works at that place. She's covered Final Fours, obviously given, uh, you probably know her for her college basketball work, Super Bowls, World Series, NBA Finals, NHL Playoffs. She previously worked at ESPN and the Philadelphia Daily News. She is the author of three books, and she's here today for her latest, The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference, in college basketball history. You can check that out on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And pleased to be joined by Dana O'Neill. Dana, how are you? I am well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. All right. I'm wishing you uh, massive success with this book because any, as I'm a big believer in any success for my athletic colleagues, ultimately success, <laughs> success for me. So I'm rooting for this book for sure. Um, all right. Obviously, uh, let's start here. Obviously, you've covered college basketball a long time. Um, you love the sport. You're very well known in our world for writing about it. But you made a decision, obviously, to you know invest a portion of your life in exploring the Big East and its history. Why? Honestly, I was kind of stunned to find out that nobody else had really done it. I mean, obviously, ESPN had that that great thirty for thirty, the requiem for the Big East, when everything kind of folded upon itself. But there was no written word, if you will, kind of following the path of the league, and I found that to be frankly astounding. I mean, how is that possible? You know, it started with me writing a story for the athletic during rivalry week a couple of years ago, just talking to coaches about the chaos they had in the meetings, like how bananas those coaches meetings got with people like cursing at one another and trying to attack one another. And then I thought, my God, there's so many stories in this league that have been told and haven't been told. And I just thought it would be fun and entertaining. I mean, you know, I grew up, I'm from New Jersey. I grew up obviously as a fan of the Big East. I've covered the Big East for a lot of time. So selfishly, it was fun for me to do. But I also just think that it was such an unbelievably impressive and influential league. I do believe the title that it was worth doing. Dana, one of the um, one of the things I was thinking about in thumbing through your book was the reality is like each of these like legendary Big East programs can be a book in itself. Like if you wanted to just do like the John Thompson era of Georgetown, like that's an amazing book. If you wanted to do the Carnesecca era of St. John's, that's an amazing book. You could probably do multiple books on Beheim, just given his 
longevity at Syracuse. So when you're when you're putting this together, when you're trying to navigate the writing of the book and the reporting of the book, how did you do that knowing that each of these programs could be a book in itself? Honestly, that, that was the hardest part because so much happened. Um, you know, I kind of had to let my, give, forgive myself a little bit thinking like I probably won't get everything because I, I don't know that you possibly could. So the way I'm a very linear writer, I need like at least an organization in my head. And the best way for me to do this was to kind of find a way to do it chronologically, but not in a boring way. So I stepped, stepped back and thought, what were like the moments in the league that everybody sort of knows, right? Like the big moments in the league that everybody remembers or has heard about. And how can I get from one moment to the next and then kind of rewind and go forward? So basically, you know, Manly Field House is closed and we rewind a little bit backwards on the beginning of the league. And eventually you get to like, you know, 1985 with three teams in the final four and you rewind, like how did Villanova get there? So that allowed me to kind of go backwards and forwards because otherwise I think I'd still be sitting here, honestly. Um, Georgetown is pretty interesting in <laughs> that um, there's uh you know, there's a, a section in this book where you obviously talk about the Thompson era. And there's a quote that I saw that it was really, really interesting. He says, uh, I didn't like being the evil empire, but I marketed it. I used <laughs> to tell kids, you know what, if you had an empty room and you told everybody don't go in, it immediately gives the room value. It's a pretty great uh, quote. So when we started to say, we're not going to do this or do that, hell, nobody was writing about us before that. In your, in your reporting and research, like how much did Thompson enjoy almost being the iconoclast of, uh, of this, like, of this league and, and of a remarkable era? Yeah. I mean, I think he understood where he fit, you know, and, and he did market it and he did enjoy it. Look, he's a, he's a, a dynamic, interesting man. If you ever inter- interviewed John Thompson Jr., you got to go in like ready because I'm, he's going to ask you as many questions as you ask him. If you ask him a question, he's going to ask you, why are you asking it? You always have to be on your toes with him. And that was sort of, how he projected himself. Look, a lot of it is, and I get it. If you look, if you learn about him and you talk to him, he's a six foot 10 black man. I mean, people thought he was imposing. People were threatened by him and his presence for a lot of reasons. And he understood that. And to some degree, he used it to his advantage and he allowed his team to kind of take it on as well. But a lot of it too, I think what people miss the boat with John is, you know, a lot of it was protection. He understood how his players were being perceived, how people were looking to poke holes at the reality of Georgetown and find things that were wrong with them. And he did a lot of this to protect them. I mean, yeah, Hoya paranoia was he didn't like being bothered with the media to an extent, but he also understood too, that he needed to kind of give his guys a buffer. And he was the biggest buffer he could give them. You, um, you think about the coaches during one of the sort of heydays of this conference, John Thompson, Raleigh Massimino, uh, Jim Beheim, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Luke Carnesecca. Uh, you think about some of the like iconic players and Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, Ed Pickney. Uh, you know, I'm doing obviously a lot of people from the 80s, uh, Pearl mm-hmm. Washington, probably at the beginning of this. It feels like, Dana, that I, I know that the, the Big East has had in each of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s some un- unbelievable moments. But it really does feel like that early, I'm sorry, that like mid-80s to late 80s stretch like is something that can never be duplicated. It, it almost felt, I mean, I'm not trying to overstate it here. And maybe some of this is because I grew up in New York, but it almost felt like the Big East at its height was as big as the NBA in some ways. 
I don't disagree with you, but again, you're talking to another Northeasterner, so maybe we should have this conversation <laughs> with someone else. But, you know, it's funny. One, one of my favorite quotes in the whole book was from Jim Calhoun, and he said it was like Camelot with bad language. And <laughs> it's, it's so perfect because it really was. I mean, it's, it was huge. It's hard to wrap your arms around now because every game is on television, right? And everything is out there. But then it wasn't. I mean, Big Monday, like you ran home to watch the game. You wanted to see Biggie's basketball because the coaches were caricatures and you didn't know what they were going to do on the sideline. And the players were ridiculous and mean and they fought and they had, you know, six fouls for a while to try to control it. And they were the best teams in the country going head to head with all of the, you know, all the angst and the anger that the Northeast brings to it. And it really was, it was a show as much of it as it was great basketball. And I don't discount your argument that it was at the time as big as the big as the NBA, because it was just every night there was a great game or a great player. And if not a great moment that you didn't see coming. I mean, people didn't see, you know, Seton Hall coming. People didn't see Providence coming, but there they were. I mean, it was unbelievable. Every single team had its moment. How many people for, how many people did you end up interviewing for the book? I think it was close to 70. Did, was there anybody who was an iconic figure that you really wanted that you didn't get? Alan Iverson. Uh, you oh. know, I tried, I tried everything down to like John Thompson, the third sending that like bat signals to try to get a hold of him. Um, I just couldn't get to him, you know? So I, you know, I talked to people about Alan Iverson. He would probably be my biggest quote regret. I got lucky. I had spoken to John Thompson a thousand times over the course of my career, but I also spoke to him specifically about this book project before he passed away. Thank God. Hmm. And um, I wrote a lot of this during COVID, but I started it before we even knew what COVID was and got dumb lucky that I scheduled a visit with Luke Karnaseka at St. John's Arena for like three and a half hours. So I am so grateful because I don't think he can do Louie on a Zoom, frankly. I just don't. <laughs> How do the stars of the conference, the uh, the Patrick Ewings, the Chris Mullins, let's say maybe even as you sort of get a little uh, more contemporary, the Kemba Walkers, et cetera, mm-hmm. how do they... How do they see the conference in relation to – how do I sort of phrase it? How do they see the conference they played in in relation to the national picture? Because once upon a time, you know, it felt like the Big East was the biggest conference in basketball. Today, it almost feels more like program – like Kentucky is the sort of the right. biggest deal or Duke is the biggest deal. It's not it, – it, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like the – it's, it feels much less about conference and more about, obviously, where the great freshman is going for that yeah. singular year, and then that team becomes like the star team of that year. Yeah, it is definitely changed. I, I agree with you. And I think going back to the origins of the Big East, the reason that started and the reason it worked out of the gate was because Dave Gavitt forced it down everybody's throat. He essentially told his coaches to start with, look, you can kill each other. I don't really care. And you can curse <laughs> about each other behind closed doors. But when you're out in public, you put the Big East first. Like you, you bury the hatchet publicly and you always support this conference because if the conference succeeds, you succeed. And the coaches took that message to heart. And that, of course, trickled down to their players. And, you know, at the time, like certainly in the 80s when it was at its heyday, people just wanted to play in that league. And there was such a pride in playing for your school and beating the other top schools because people passed down their hatred. Like, you know, you went to Georgetown, you knew you were supposed to hate Syracuse before you stepped on campus. So they got it. But as they got older, you know, I was always impressed. You know, you do, you talk about a Kemba Walker at UConn or, you know, even Carmelo Anthony for the five minutes that he was at Syracuse, they understood. They were passed on this mantle of understanding like what league you're in, 
what the background is, what, you, what it's all about, what winning in New York is. There was such an immense pride in playing, not just for your school, but playing in the Big East. It, it really was amazing. It did, it did go beyond just being kind of, quote, true to your school, if you will. Yeah, that five minutes for Carmel Anthony, pretty good five minutes for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, Syracuse fans are grateful. <laughs> the um, All right, let me ask you about, like, in 2011, the Big East had 11 NCAA tournament bids. UConn, if I'm doing my chronology from your book right, wins. I think they actually, they might have played some other Big East teams during that tournament. Um, but they ended up beating Butler to win their third national championship and the sixth for the conference. Do you, not to say that the conference isn't still good, but is that the, I don't know. Do you feel like, is that the last or the final moment of the the Big East as a superpower and whatever they are now, while still a good basketball conference, it's, I don't know, it's not the same or am I, am I, am I creating my own little line in the sand here? No, you're not. I mean, look, I mean, even at that point, it was a power because of the number, the, the sheer 11 teams in the NCAA tournament was just so astronomical. But, you know, I think you can argue even at that point, like the teams that were in the Big East were sort of like, who, what? You know, there's, it was such a big league by that point because they ex- expanded to, to sort of take care of football. So, you know, that was sort of the moment that it kind of reached the crescendo and then it crashed like a house of cards. Um, but even in that moment, I think you could see the fractures because it, it wasn't the Big East that it was. I mean, to me, the single greatest ending moment is kind of why I ended the book there was the six overtimes. Cause that was just amazing. You know, yeah. that was just the, the greatest big East moment at Madison square garden as a league is sort of teetering on the brink a little bit, not quite over it yet. But to me, that was sort of that moment, but yeah, I mean, look, it's still a great conference and it's a great basketball conference, but it's not the same. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that it is. And what it was at that point, in a, a, you know, when it gets the 11 bids, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a monster, but it's a different kind of monster. It was sort of like a volume monster, like quantity, quality kind of argument I think you can make at that point. All right, let's, I want to talk before I let you go, I want to talk about uh, a couple things about today, sort of the world mm-hmm. today. Villanova is a top five school, uh, at least as far as the latest rankings that I saw. So mm-hmm. the 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 conference like still um, has it seems like I mean you can correct me obviously you're the expert but the conference still has the ability to have a team that is a like a legitimate team in the conversation for a national championship like is mm-hmm. that a is that a fair sentence to say still hundred percent absolutely okay yeah. all right so it what what seems seems to be different is that where maybe once upon a time. You might have five teams or four right. teams that could be a national championship contender. You know, maybe it's, I mean, Villanova is consistently that. Uh, maybe sort of Connecticut bubbles up or something like that in one year. So how would you, if you were sort of looking around nationally and you looked at the conference with the Butlers and St. John's and UConn and Villanova and Georgetown, like where does it sit for you in like a power rankings at the moment with the rest of the country? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, obviously, like everything else, it ebbs and flows, right? I mean, some years the SEC is better than, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think you've got your, quote, power five schools and Big East. And when you, you know, talk or basketball, you have to add the Big East as sort of the sixth. So sometimes it jockeys, you know, anywhere from, you know, third to sixth, depending on if Creighton is good that year, if Providence is having a good year, now that UConn's back. But 
certainly on a consistent national level right now, the only team you know for sure you're going to count on every year is Villanova. Um, I think adding UConn, part of the reason adding UConn made sense beyond the whole tradition and all of that, is UConn's a team that can do that. UConn is a team that can get you in the top 10 pretty much every year. They're, they're, they, they are capable of that. I've contended for years, and I will continue to contend, that for the league to really get its swagger back, it needs St. John's and or, preferably, and Georgetown to get back into some sort of consistent situation where they are threatening and in the top 15, top 20, because that's the main recognition of the league. Hmm. You know, Providence, Butler, Butler's going to be good here and there. Xavier's going to be good. Marquette's going to be good. But no matter how good those teams are, they are Big East teams, but they don't resonate the same way as Big East teams as the original ones do. Do you think, um, and the likelihood is maybe not, because there are certainly some schools that are top five, top 10 schools that don't necessarily have a football equivalent, but is the league hurt? at all by its decision to, for the most part, be a basketball league as opposed to being like the SEC, which obviously is uh, strength in football, strength in basketball, strength across the board? I don't think so. I think after everything they went through, they recognized very much that if they wanted to keep their essence, you know, with the schools that they had, they couldn't go down the, ba- the football route anymore. And in an, in an ironic twist, if you will, I mean, the Big East fell apart because of football. Yes. The Big East is now very secure because of football. Nobody wants anything to do with any of the Big East teams. They don't have what they want. They're not going to be rated. Um, so they're very secure in their identity, and they're very secure in who they are. And, I'm, you know, I forgot to mention, like, Seton Hall was really good the last couple of years. You know, you forgot, forget that Seton Hall has the, the ability. So I think they're in a really secure spot, and I think they've proven that they can get teams regularly into the NCAA tournament, and they can get them into the Sweet 16. They can get two national champions. Um, so I think they're fine. I think the interesting thing will be what they do going forward if they choose to, uh, you know, expand themselves, which I think they probably will. Then it just becomes a question of with whom and how. Yeah, you drop Seton Hall, so I'll give a proud shout out to uh, my producer, Patrick Antonetti, a yeah. proud member of the uh, Seton Hall family. Um, all right, one more on the Big East, and then I want to ask you just one sort of college basketball national question. Th- this is a very selfish question for me, Dana, because um, of where I grew up. St. John's at one time was such a big deal in college basketball. And if nothing else, you always thought that like they had a chance to land the best players in like New York city or the best players in New York state. Like, and, and in theory, because of what New York is, you know, that should at least make you a, a, like a top 25, like a competitive team. They went through this stretch where it, it seemed like kids from not only kids from New York didn't necessarily consider them, but they didn't, they couldn't bring in these mega recruits, um, you know, from, from other places. And I wonder, is it a facilities issue? Is it a coaching issue? Like, why do you think this school, which once upon a time, you know, at least in the eighties was a final four college basketball school has not been able to sort of return to those roots, even though it's considered sort of New York city's best college basketball team. Well, I, I think it's a combination of, right. I mean, it's always a combination of, of coaching and, Lack of, you know, results, um, just, you know, that's, that's the most important thing. If you have a good coach who's getting you results and kids are going to want to go there, and they just haven't been able to consistently do that to get kids to want to go there. But I do think that there is something to be said about the facilities issue. I know they're talking about addressing that because, look, it's great to play at the Garden, don't get me wrong, but the Garden is not on your campus. And um, right. yep. and what is on your campus is just okay. And, you know, if you're, 
if you're a kid from New York these days, you have grown up in a, in you know AAU basketball, traveling the country. You don't you're not intimidated to leave home anymore because you've been leaving home since you were in the seventh grade. Um, you know what else is out there because you've seen it since you were in the seventh grade. Like that whole stay in your own backyard thing doesn't really resonate with kids like it used to. So you have to offer them a reason to want to come to your school. I mean, you have to offer them a reason to stay home versus leaving. And, you know, Chris Mullen stayed home because he realized he could get everything he needed at home. Well, right now, I'm not sure if St. John's can offer everything that a kid thinks he needs at home. Last one for me. You know, I watched uh, this week Gonzaga play against Texas. It was just kind of, yeah. you know, I like to try to at least watch like the top uh, top five, top 16, just so I can get a sense of, um, you know, one, what's going on in the NCAAs, but two, you know, who might be who I might be paying attention to uh, in the NBA next year. And so I was watching this game and I, obviously there's now, uh, kids now, high school kids now have the option to go into, uh, G league to play like a singular year as a professional mm-hmm. and then get drafted. Uh, there's all sorts of the, there's, there's a couple of these, uh, other, uh, places that are trying to get a, like a similar deal where, um, the best high school players, as opposed to going to college basketball can play, uh, professionally for a year and then head to the, NBA. The the world has changed since you mm-hmm. started covering this. <laughs> Obviously, it's changed pretty dramatically. So when you're thinking about sort of covering college basketball, like how how like how do you approach it these days? Do you do you, do you approach it while yeah, you want to focus on the power schools? Do you do you keep your eye on like uh G League stuff? Like how like I wonder just for in terms of when you're thinking about some of the stories of mm-hmm. the young people that you want to focus on? Like, how do you do it? What's your approach, given that it's a really different landscape than it was 15, 10 years ago? Yeah, I mean, my, you know, my wheelhouse is still college basketball. So I always joke, I care about them once they get in school and that's about it. Once they leave, they're on their own, onto somebody else's problem in the NBA or wherever they go. Um, so I have them for a very small window. But, you know, yeah, the G League, Overtime Elite, all these options that are out there going overseas, they certainly have the chance to, quote, drain the pool. But I'll be curious to see, and, and this is what I've been looking at lately, is, you know, NIL could be a great equalizer, I think, for college basketball. If guys can come into college and make some, you know, a little bit of money here and there and, and get good coaching. I mean, that's the one thing that, you know, the G League and the overtime elites and all these things haven't been proven yet. Like, can you get everything you need to become a better player, an NBA-ready player, comparatively to the college game? I don't know. So, um, you know, I still watch it for the college kids as short or as long as I might have them. Um, I, I still find them to be pretty interesting. I, I still think, you know, fans want to be invested in them. It's trickier now because they're not around so long. So the ones that stick around get the best return on the investment from their fans. And I think that's changed things dramatically. But I also think it's interesting when you look at the programs that have been elite for the last few years consistently there is a common thread and that is they don't get everybody to stick around for four years necessarily, but they get enough guys to stick around for two, three years to build a foundation. And Mm -hmm. to me, that remains the essence of success in college basketball. I don't think that's going to ever change to be honest with you. Do you think, can there, here's my last one for you. Can there be more Gonzagas that emerge where a program is a mid-major and then eventually through uh, great recruiting or through great results or through a great coach, like eventually becomes a top five power because in my college basketball experience, that's been that like Gonzaga has been one of the more interesting stories to Mm -hmm. me just because uh, I was always used to like Kentucky and North Carolina and Duke. And these would always be the programs that won. And these would always be the programs 
um, that were top five. And yeah, mid-majors were a nice story in the NCAA tournament. But you know what I mean? They were never going to get like yeah. the de facto number one pick. Well, th- that's massively changed. I mean, right now, depending on the NBA draft mocks you want, yeah, Gonzaga either has the number one or number two pick in next year's draft. Yeah. And so that's really, and obviously I just had Jalen Suggs who went um, fifth to the Magic. So can that like can that be duplicated or was just uh, what Mark Few did at Gonzaga just kind of a once in a generation kind of thing? Well, I mean, you know, everybody wants to be the Gonzaga of the East, the West, the Midwest, the South. <laughs> you talk to everybody, they're going to be that, right? A lot had to happen right for that to work at Gonzaga, and and Mark Few will be the first person to tell you that. Yeah, they went out. It's a long. It was a long build. They they went foreign players for a, quite a long time. They recruited in the in the you know Pacific Northwest, but the, the biggest thing they had to get was financial support from the administration. They had to get backing from the university because without it, you don't do that. I mean, you just don't. So I think that's the biggest question. Are there schools out there that want to be that? Absolutely, everybody wants to be that. But are you willing to invest? in your your program to the, to the point that they can become that you know do I, I look at a team like Loyola Chicago look Porter Moser not being there changes things a little bit but they've got some you know NCAA tournament heft to them they've proven that they have a method to winning they've got a, a nice fan backing they're in a great recruiting area they've got decent facilities they're in a league that they can dominate could they do it? Yeah, but it's you know, it's a slow build, and you've got to stay committed to it. And I think a lot of schools, and even a lot of coaches, they the coaches want to go else, elsewhere and, and do bigger things, and the program and the schools get kind of bored of the slog, if you will. So you've got to really stick with it, and that's why it doesn't happen because most people don't want to stick with it. Hmm. Shout out to Sister Jean. I like that Loyola <laughs> Chicago reference. Yeah, that's but that's interesting. I'll pay attention to that. That I had that. Was did not cross my mind, but that's really interesting, especially the Chicago connection. They already have a right? a deep reservoir there. All right, Dana O'Neill is a senior writer for the Athletic. You can catch her work, obviously, especially right now, given that college basketball is heating up. Her newest book is The Big East: Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. She told you that she interviewed seventy people, so you'll see everybody in there: John Thompson and Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, all the people who made that league as famous. Uh, as it is. Uh, Dana, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm a great admirer of your work. It's really great to be your colleague and uh, continued success heading forward. Back at you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, back in the studio. Uh, that was great. My thanks to Ian Eagle and Mike Breen for just a terrific conversation. And Dana O'Neill, my colleague at The Athletic as well. Um, this is a podcast I really enjoyed, both segments. Um, was very cool and, and particularly cool of uh, Ian Eagle and uh, Mike Breen to, to come on together. I've been trying to do that for a little bit. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the archives. The conversation before this one, Pam Oliver of Fox Sports, who is awesome, and sports writer and author Lindsay Darkangelo. She is a colleague of mine at The Athletic, and um, she's co-author of a new book, Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Before that, Chris Jericho of AEW and pro wrestling fame. He discusses, um, goes way beyond wrestling, just in terms of uh, reinvention and um, how he approaches the media and um, and what it's like to sort of thrive in a, in a very media-centric business over uh, 20, 30 years at this point. Jericho. Before that, Robert Griffin III of ESPN, an emerging college football broadcaster, and Katie Strang and Mark Lazarus of The Athletic and um, all the reporting that's been going on 
in the National Hockey League and hockey in general with um, sexual assault and, uh, and the culture there. Those are two of the best. Uh, head to the archives if uh, these are the kind of uh, uh, guests you like or if you're into sports media. Uh, give us a five-star review and a nice uh, note on that review. That is how this podcast uh, continues. It's, uh, you know, it's an independent, basically, so we have to have a listener support on that one. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti and Bob Tabador for producing this podcast. Two guys uh, working on this this week. Really appreciate uh, their work. I want to thank everybody at Canes 13. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs>